15. Beards of what we call taste is really smell. If you carefully block up your nostrils with cotton or wax, so that no air can possibly reach the smell region at the top of them, and blindfold your eyes, and have someone cut a raw potato, an apple, and a raw onion into a little pieces of the same size and shape, and put them into your mouth one after the other, you will find that it is difficult to tell which is which. The only tastes that are really perceived in the mouth are bitter, sweet, sour, and salty, and even these are perceived quite as much by the roof and back of the mouth, especially the soft palate, as they are by the tongue. All the delicate flavors of our food, such as those of coffee or of roast meat or of freshly baked bread, are really smells. The tongue, which is usually described as the organ of taste, is really a sort of fingerless hand grown up from the floor of the mouth to help suck in or lap up water or milk, push the food in between the teeth for chewing, and, when it has been chewed, roll it into a ball and push it backward down the throat. It is not even the chief organ of speech, for people who have had their tongues removed on account of cancer, or some other disease, can talk fairly well, although not so clearly as with the whole tongue. The tongue is simply a tongue-shaped bundle of muscles, covered with a thick, tough skin of mucous membrane, dotted all over with little knob-like processes called papillae, which are of various shapes, but of no particular utility, except to roughen the surface of the tongue and give it a good grip on the food. If the mucous skin covering the tongue does not shed off properly, the dead cells on its surface become thickened and whitish, and the germs of the mouth begin to breed and grow in them, forming a sort of mat over the surface. Then we say that the tongue is badly coated. This coating is in part due to unhealthy conditions of the stomach and bowels, and in part to a lack of proper cleaning of the mouth and teeth. The sense of taste can usually be trusted, since the nose and the tongue have had about 5 million years experience in picking out what is good and refusing what is bad. Their judgment is pretty reliable, and their opinion entitled to the greatest respect. As a general thing, those things that taste good are wholesome and nutritious. The finest and most enjoyable flavors known are those of our commonest and most wholesome foods, such as good bread, fresh butter, roast meats, apples, cheese, sugar, fruit, etc., while, on the other hand, those things that taste bad or bitter or salty or sour, or that we have to learn to like, like beer or pickles or strong cheese or tea or coffee, are more often unwholesome or have little nutritive value. Very few real foods taste bad when we first try them. If we used our noses to test every piece of food that went into our mouths, and refused to eat it if it smelled bad, we should avoid many an attack of indigestion and ptomaine poisoning. It is really a great pity that it is not considered polite to sniff at the table. The eye how the eye is made. Next in importance after the smell and the taste of our food comes the appearance of it. Hence, our need of eyes to help us in choosing what to eat as well as how to avoid the dangers about us. The eyes began as little sensitive spots on the surface of the head, like the nose pits. As they became more sensitive, they too sank in beneath the surface, but with this difference, that, instead of remaining open, the rims or edges of the eye pit grew together and became transparent, forming a cover, or eyeglass, which became the clear part of the eye, called the cornea, at the same time. The little sensitive spot at the bottom of the eye pit spread out into the shape of the bottom of a cup, called the retina, and then the hollow of that cup between the retina and the cornea filled up with a clear, soft, animal jelly called the vitreous humor, and we have the eye as it is in our heads today, the sensitive retina, spreading out, as it does, to form the back of the eyeball, is the nerve coat of the eye, 
and from its center a thick round bundle of nerve fibers, known as the optic nerve, runs back to the brain. Illustration, the apparatus of vision across section diagram, showing eye and optic nerve, the bones forming the orbit or socket, and the front lobes of the brain, the bones of the head, grown out in a ring in order to protect the eyes, are called the orbit or socket, to protect the delicate glass cornea of the eye. There are two folds of skin, one above and one below, known as the eyelids. The eyelids carry a row of extra long hairs at their edges, called the eyelashes, and a number of little glands, somewhat like those of the stomach, to pour out a fluid, which makes the lids glide smoothly over the eyeball and keeps them from sticking together. Underneath the upper lid a number of these glands become gathered together and grow in, after the fashion of the salivary glands, to form a larger gland about the size of a small almond, which pours out large amounts of this fluid as tears. It is called the tear gland lacrimal gland. Whenever a cinder or a grain of sand or a tiny insect or any other irritating thing gets into the eye, this gland pours out a flood of tears, which washes the intruder down into the inner corner of the eye where it can be wiped out, or, if it be small enough, carries it down through a little tube in the edge of each eyelid, through a little passage known as the nasal, or tear, duct, into the nose. So, if you get anything into your eye, much the best and safest thing to do is to hold the lids half shut, but as loose, or relaxed, as possible, and allow the tears to wash the speck of dust down into the inner corner of the eye. If you squeeze down too hard with the lids, and particularly if you rub the eye, you will be very likely to scratch the cornea with the speck of dust or sand, or, if the speck be sharp-edged, to drive it right into the cornea and give yourself a great deal of unnecessary pain and trouble or even seriously damage the eye. If the cinder or dust doesn't wash down quickly, pull the upper lid gently away from the eyeball by the lashes and hold it there a minute or so, when often the cinder will drop or wash out, as the light rays cannot be bent, or drawn into the eyes as smells can into the nostrils. It is necessary that the eyes should be able to roll about so as to turn in different directions, and so nature has made them round, or globular that a shading to their outer coat or shell the sclerotic coat little bands of muscle, each of which pulls the eyeball in its particular direction. There are four straight bands one for each point of the compass, one fastened to the upper surface of the eye to roll it upward, another to the lower to roll it downward, another to the outer to roll it outward, and another to the inner side to roll it inward for near vision. There is another reason for the rounded shape of the eye that it may act as a lens in condensing the rays of light. In order that we may see things clearly, the rays of light must be brought to a focus upon or close to the retina, at the back of the eye, and our eyes are so shaped that they form a lens of proper thickness, or strength, to do this. You can see how this is done with an ordinary magnifying glass, or burning glass. The little sharply lighted and heated point to which the light rays can be brought is the focus of the lens, and the distance it lies behind the lens is called the focal distance. The thicker the lens, or burning glass is in the middle, the shorter its focal distance, and the more strongly it will magnify, a healthy, or normal, eye is of just such shape and, bulge, that rays of light entering the eye are brought to a focus on, or close to, the retina at the back of the eyeball, some people, however, are unfortunately born with eyes that are too small and flat, or do not, bulge, enough, and then the rays of light are focused behind the retina instead of upon it, and the image is blurred, this is known as, long sight, hyperopia, and can be corrected by putting in front of the eyes lenses of glass, called spectacles, which bulge sufficiently to bring the rays to focus on the retina, 
An eye that is too large and round and bulging brings the rays to a focus in front of the retina, and this also blurs the image. This form of poor sight is called, short sight, myopia, and can be relieved by putting in front of the eye a glass that is concave, or thinnest in the middle and thickest at the edges, in the right proportions to focus the image where it belongs, right on the retina. This kind of glass is sometimes called a, minifying, glass, from the fact that it makes objects seen through it look smaller. It is also called a, minus, glass, while the magnifying glass is called a, plus, glass. The shape of the glasses or spectacles prescribed for an eye is just the opposite of that of the eye. If the eye is too flat long-sighted, you put on a bulging, or convex, glass, and if the eye is too bulging short-sighted, a hollow, or concave, glass. Other eyes are irregularly shaped in front and bulge more in one direction than another, like an orange. This defect is called astigmatism and is very troublesome, making it hard to fit the eye with glasses, as the glasses have to be ground irregular in shape. Illustration, a school eye test a normal eye should be able to read the smaller type easily at a distance of 20 feet. We have just seen how the eye deals with rays of light coming from a distance, which are practically parallel. When, however, books or other objects are brought near the eye, the rays of light coming from them do not remain parallel but begin to spread apart, or diverge, and a stronger lens is required to bring them to a focus upon the retina. To provide for this, there is in the middle of the eyeball a firm, elastic, little globular body about the size and shape of a lemon drop, called the crystalline lens. Around this is a ring of muscle, which is so arranged that when it contracts it causes the lens to change its shape and become more bulging, or thicker in the middle. This makes the eyeball a, stronger, lens so that the rays of light can be brought to a focus upon the retina. This action is known as accommodation, or adjustment, and you can sometimes feel it going on in your own eye. As when you pick up a book or a piece of sewing and bring it up quickly, close to the eye, in order to see clearly, if this little muscle is worked too hard, as when we try to read in a bad light, it becomes tired and we get what is called, eye strain, and if the strain be kept up too long, it will give us headache and may even make us sick at the stomach. The commonest cases of eye strain are in eyes that are too flat hyperopic where this little muscle has to bulge the lens enough to make good the defect and bring the rays to a focus. This, however, of course keeps it on a constant strain, and the eye is continually giving out, and its owner suffering from headache, neuralgia, dyspepsia, sleeplessness, and other forms of nervous trouble, until the proper lens or spectacle is fitted. A surface as delicate and sensitive to a light as the retina, would, of course, be damaged by too bright a glare, so in the front of the eye, just behind the cornea, a curtain has grown up, with an opening or, peep hole, in its center, which can be enlarged or made smaller by little muscles. This opening is the pupil, the curtain, which is colored so as to shut out the rays of light, is known as the iris, for the quaint, but rather picturesque, reason that iris in Greek means, rainbow and this part of the eye may be any one of its colors. It is the iris which, according to the amount of coloring matter pigment in it, makes the eye, as we say, blue, gray, green, brown, or black. Blue eyes have the least, black, the most, the care of the eyes. The most dangerous diseases of the eye are caused by infectious germs, which get into them either from the outside, as in dust, or by touching them with dirty fingers, or through the blood, as in measles smallpox, tuberculosis, and rheumatism. The more completely we can prevent these diseases, the less blindness we shall have in the nation.
about one-sixth of all cases of blindness in our asylums is caused by a germ that gets into baby's eyes at birth, but can be done away with by proper washing and cleansing of the eyes, the ear structure of the ear, next after sight, hearing is our most important sense, without it, speaking, and consequently reading and writing, would be impossible, man learned to speak by hearing the sounds made by other people and things, and then by listening to his own voice and practicing until he could imitate them. Children who are unfortunate enough to be born deaf also become dumb, not because there is anything the matter with their voice organs, but simply because, as they cannot hear the sounds they make, they do not form them by practice into words and sentences. By proper training, deaf mutes can now be taught to speak, though their voices sound flat and tinny, like a phonograph, as in the nose and the eye. The important part of the ear is the nerve spot that can feel the air waves that we call sound. Just as the retina feels light, it is from the sensitive spot that the auditory nerve carries the sound to the brain. This spot has grown into quite an elaborate structure, buried, for safety, deeply in the bones of the skull, close to the base of the brain. It is made up of a long row of tiny little nerve rods, laid side by side like the keys of a piano. Only there are about 3,000 of them. Each one of these is supposed to respond, or vibrate, to a particular tone, or sound, this keyboard, from the fact that, to save space, it is coiled upon itself like a seashell, instead of running straight, is called the cochlea Greek for, snail shell, it is also called, because it is the deepest, or innermost, part of the hearing apparatus, the internal ear, just as the retina has a lens and a vitreous humor in front of it to act upon the light. So the internal ear has an apparatus in front of it to act upon the sound waves. This is called the drum tympanum. It consists of a fold of thin, delicate skin stretched tightly across the bottom of the outer ear canal. As parchment is stretched across the head of a drum, if you should take a hand mirror best a hollow, or concave, one and throw a bright ray of light deep into someone's ear, you would be able, after a little trying, to see this drum skin stretched across the bottom of it and about an inch and a quarter in from the surface of the head, when the sound waves go into the ear canal and strike upon this tiny drum, which is about two-thirds the size of a silver dime and really more like a tambourine or the disc of a telephone or phonograph than a drum, they start it thrilling, or vibrating, just as a guitar string vibrates when you thrum it, these little vibrations are carried across the hollow behind the drum by a chain of tiny bones, known as the ear bones called from their shapes, the hammer, the anvil, and the stirrup, and pass aid on to the keyboard of the cochlea. Here comes in one of the most curious things about this ingenious hearing apparatus. This little hollow behind the drum skin has to be kept full of air in order to let the drum vibrate properly, and this is arranged for by a little tube the eustachian tube which runs down from the bottom of it and opens into the back of the throat just behind the nasal passages, and above the soft palate. When you blow your nose very hard, you will sometimes feel one of your ears go, pop, and that means that you have blown a bubble of air out through this tube into a eardrum cavity. If your nose and throat become inflamed, then the mouth of this little tube may become blocked up, the drum can no longer thrill, or vibrate, properly, and, for the time being, you are deaf. This tube is of great importance, because nearly all the diseases that attack the ear start in at the throat and travel up the tube until they reach the drum cavity. This is why one so often has earache after an attack of the grip or after a bad cold. The drum cavity, with its chain of bones and its tube down to the throat, is called, from its position, the middle ear, the outer, or external, ear, though far the largest of the three parts, and quite imposing in appearance, 
is really of little use or importance. It is simply a sort of receiving trumpet for catching sounds, with a very wide and curiously curved and crumpled mouth, or bell, the large, expanded mouth of the trumpet, called the conca, conch shell, was at one time capable of being pricked up and turned in the direction of sounds, just as horses or dogs' ears are now, and in our own ears there are still for this purpose three pairs of tiny unused muscles running from them to the side of the head, but the conca is now motionless and almost useless except for its beauty, and it is very troublesome to wash. The care of the ear, the tube of the trumpet leading down from the surface of the ear to the drum is lined with skin, and the skin is supplied with glands, which pour out a sticky, yellowish fluid called earwax, which catches the bits of dust or insects that get into the ear and, flowing slowly outward, carries them with it. If it is let alone, it will keep the ear canal clean and healthy, but some people imagine that, because it looks yellowish, it must be dirt, and consequently, from mistaken ideas of cleanliness, they work at it with the end of the finger, the corner of a towel, or even with a hairpin, an ear spoon, or an ear pick, and in this way stop the proper flow of the wax and make it dry and block up the ear. Remember, you should not wash too deeply into your ears, as the old German proverb puts it. Never pick your ear with anything smaller than your elbow. And if you don't, you will seldom have trouble with wax in the ear. Scarcely one case of deafness in a hundred is caused by wax. When your ear does become blocked up with wax, it is best to go to a doctor and let him syringe it out. Picking at it, or even syringing too hard, may do serious damage to the ear. If an earache is neglected, the inflammation may spread into some air cells in the bony lump behind the ear the mastoid and thus cause mastoid disease, which may spread to, and attack, the brain if not cured by a surgical operation. Our spirit levels the sixth sense, though we usually speak of having five senses, sight, smell, hearing, touch, and taste. We really have also a sixth the sense of direction, or of balance. The machine of the sense is comparatively simple, being made up of three tiny curved tubes, which, from their shape, are called the semicircular canals. These are buried in the same bone of the skull as the internal ear, and so close to it that they were at one time described as part of it. These little canals are three in number, one for each of the dimensions length, breadth, and thickness, so that whichever way the head or body is moved, backward and forward, up and down, or from side to side, the fluid with which they are filled will change its level in one of them, just as the bead does in the carpenter's spirit level that you can find in any tool shop. The delicate nerve twigs that run out into the fluid in these tiny canals are gathered together into a bundle, or nerve cable which runs back to the part of the brain known as the cerebellum or hind brain, which has most to do with controlling the balance and movements of our bodies. It is the disturbance set up in these spirit level canals by the pitching and rolling of a ship, which makes us seasick. Neither the stomach, nor anything that we may have eaten, has anything to do with it. In the same way we sometimes become sick and dizzy from swinging too long or too high, or from riding on the cars. Footnotes to show in how many different ways nature may carry out the same purpose. The smelling organs in insects, lobsters, and crabs are on the ends and sides of tiny feelers, which they wave about, and the eyes in lobsters, crawfish, and snails, are on the ends of stalks, which they thrust about in all directions as a burglar handles a bullseye lantern. Snakes, hear, or catch the sound waves, with their flickering, forked tongues and grasshoppers and locusts have eardrums on the sides of their chests. These are called the recti or straight muscles, upper, lower, inner, 
and outer, according to their position. Then, to roll the eye round and round, there are two little muscles, one above and one below, which run crosswise of the orbit, called the upper and lower oblique muscles. The retina is chiefly made up of a great number of fine little nerve cells called, from their shape, the rods and cones. These are kept soaked in a colored fluid called the retinal purple, which changes under the influence of light, somewhat in the same way that the film on a photographic plate does, thus forming pictures, which are translated by the rods and cones and telegraphed along the fibers of the optic nerve to the brain. Naturally, all parts of the retina are not equally sensitive to a light, its center, which is directly opposite the pupil of the eye, is far the most so, while those around the rim of the cup are dull. This is why, when you are looking, say at someone's face across the room, only the face and a few inches around it are seen perfectly clear and sharp, while the rest of the room is seen only vaguely, as the inside of the eye is dark, or comparatively so, the pupil, or little opening in the center of the iris, looks black, and was at one time supposed to be a solid body instead of a hole, you can easily watch the pupil changing in size, according to the brightness of the light from a mere pinpoint in very bright sunlight or gaslight, up to the size of the butt end of a league pencil in the dark or in a dim light. This change in size is very simply but ingeniously carried out by two sets of tiny muscles. One set of these muscles runs in a ring right around the pupil, and when they shorten, the opening is contracted or narrowed. The other set runs outward through the iris like the spokes of a wheel, and when they shorten, they pull the pupil open. If anyone has had drops, a dropping put into his eyes in order to have them fitted with glasses, he will know what a disagreeably dazzling thing it is to have the pupil permanently enlarged, so that it cannot contract in a bright light. Chapter XXIV The Speech Organs The Voice A Waste Product It is one of the most curious things in this body of ours that what we regard as its most wonderful power and gift, the voice, island in one sense, a waste product. So ingenious is nature that she has actually made that marvelous musical instrument the human voice with its range, its flexibility, and its powers of expression, out of spent breath, or used up air, which has done its work in the lungs and is being driven off to get rid of it. It is like using the waste from a kitchen sink to turn a mill. The organs that make the human voice were never built for that purpose in the first place, and like the eye and the ear, nature built no special organ for the voice alone but simply utilize the windpipe and lung bellows, the swallowing parts of the food passage tongue, lips, and palate and the nose, for that purpose, long after they had taken their own particular shapes for their own special ends. The important point about this is that a good voice requires not merely a large and well-developed music box in the windpipe, but good lungs, a well-shaped healthy throat, properly arched jaws, which mean good, sound teeth, clear and healthy nasal passages, and a flexible elastic tongue. Of course, the blood and the nerves supplying all these structures must be in good condition, as well. So practically, a good voice requires that the whole body should be healthy, and whatever we do to improve the condition of our nose, our teeth, our throat, our lungs, our digestion, and our circulation will help to improve the possibilities of our voice. There are, of course, many exceptions but you will generally find that great singers have not only splendid lungs and large vocal cords, but good hearts, vigorous constitutions, and bodies above the average in both stature and strength. How the voice is produced, the chief parts of the breathing machine that nature has made over for talking purposes are the windpipe, or air tube, and the muscles in its walls, 
in the neck, about three inches above the collarbone, four or five of the rings of cartilage, or gristle, which, you remember, give stiffening to the windpipe, have grown together and enlarged to form a voice box, or larynx, illustration, the vocal cords looked at from above, position, in quiet inspiration, in singing a low tone, in singing a high tone, the upper edge of this voice box forms the projection in the front of the throat known by the rather absurd name of the Adam's apple. This grows larger in proportion to the heaviness of the sounds to be made, and hence is larger in men than in women and boys. When the boy's voice box begins to grow to the man's in shape and size, his voice is likely to break, for it is changing from the high, clear boy's voice to the heavy, deep voice of the man, inside of this voice box. One of the rings of muscle that run around the windpipe has stretched into a pair of straight, elastic bands, or strings, one on each side of the airpipe, known as the vocal cords, or voice bands. These are so arranged that they can be stretched and relaxed by little muscles, and, when thrown into vibration by the air rushing through the voice box, they produce the sounds that we call talking or singing. The more tightly they are stretched, the higher and shriller are the tones they produce, and the more they are slackened or relaxed, the deeper and more rumbling are the tones, this is why, when you try to sing a high note, you can feel something tightening and straining in your throat, until finally you can stretch it no tighter, and your voice, breaks, as you say, into a scream or cry, all musical instruments that have strings, are played, or produce their sounds, upon the same principle, the thinner and shorter the string, or the more tightly it is stretched, the higher the note, the heavier and longer the string, the lower the note, but no musical instrument ever yet invented can equal the human voice in the music of its tones, in its range, in the different variety and quality of tones it can produce, and in its wonderful power of expression, the human voice is a combination of reed organ, pipe organ, trumpet, and violin, and can produce in its tiny music box only about two inches long by one inch wide all the tones and qualities of tones that can be produced on all these instruments, except that it cannot go quite so high or so low. All the musical instruments in the world, from the penny whistle to the grand piano, are but poor imitations of the human music box. The bellows, of course, of the human pipe organ are the lungs, while the tongue furnishes the stops, and the throat, mouth, and nose, the resonance or sounding, chambers, just as a violin, or guitar, has two main parts, a string, which vibrates and makes the sound, and a box, or hollow body, which catches that sound and enlarges it and gives it sweetness and vibration and quality, so the human voice has two similar parts the vocal bands, which make the sound, and a sound box, or rather series of three resonance boxes, the throat, the mouth, and the nasal passages, which enlarge and soften it and improve its quality, you would naturally think that the strings, or chords, were the most important part both of the voice and of a musical instrument, and in one sense they are, as it could make no noise at all without them, but in another sense, far more important are the sounding boxes, or resonance chambers, the whole quality and value, for instance, of a Stradivarius violin, which will make it readily bring $10,000 in the open market, are due to the skill with which the body, or sound box, was made, the quality of the wood used, and, odd as it may seem, even the varnish used on it the strings are the same as on any $5 fiddle, this is almost equally true of the human voice, while its size, or volume, is determined by the voice box and vocal bands, and its power largely by the lungs and chest, 
its musical quality, its color, and its expression are given almost entirely by the throat, mouth including the lips, and nose. The proper management of these parts is two-thirds of voice training, and all these are largely under our control. How a good voice may be developed, if the nasal passages, for instance, are blocked by a bad cold or a catar or adenoids, then nearly half the body of your violin is blocked up and deadened, half your resonance chamber is destroyed, and the voice sounds flat and dead and nasal. If, on the other hand, your throat be swollen, or blocked, as by enlarged tonsils or chronic sore throat, then this part of the resonance chamber is muffled and spoiled, and your voice will be either entirely gone or hoarse, though perhaps by driving it very hard you may be able to make a clear tone. If you have an attack of inflammation or cold further down, and the vocal bands swell, or the mucous membrane lining the voice box becomes inflamed and thickened, then the voice is lost entirely, just as the tone of a violin would be if a wet cloth were thrown across the strings, but disturbances in the voice box, or larynx, cause only a very small percentage of husky, poor, or in musical voices, a far commoner cause, indeed probably the commonest single cause of a poor, squeaky, or drawling, and musical voice is careless and improper management of the mouth and lips, in the first place, you can easily show that such marked differences in sound as those of the different vowels are all produced by the mouth and lips, if you will prepare to say the vowels A-I-O-U loud, and begin with, and then hold your mouth and lips firmly in the same position, you will find that all the other vowels also come out as, if, on the other hand, you begin with your mouth and lips in the rounded and somewhat thrust out position necessary to say, and try to repeat the rest of the vowels, you will find that you cannot say them at all, but only different forms of, when you have convinced yourself of this, repeat the vowels loudly and clearly without stopping to think about the position of the mouth, and notice how your lips, the tip and base of your tongue, and your soft palate and throat all change their positions for each successive vowel. If you will try to sing the scale, beginning with a comfortable note about the middle of your voice range, and letting your mouth take the shape for that note unconsciously, you will find that, as you sing up the scale, you cha, 